either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. One of those weeks that we thought last week was going to be fairly quiet and then not so much. Correct. That happens sometimes. So we've got uh, a decent number, a good number of films to talk about and definitely some good stuff. So welcome to it. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we're from MadWolf.com. Let's start with a fictional account of an incredible night where icons Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown gathered discussing their roles in the civil rights movement and cultural upheaval of the 1960s. This is One Night in Miami. I was made in America, land of the free, home of the brave. This movement that we are in is called a struggle because we are fighting for our lives. This ain't about civil rights. They ain't giving black people what they really want. What's that? Hey, I was made in America. That's why I'm out here saving America. Power. Black power. I like the sound of that. Uh, I wish I lived in America. We have to be there for each other. Uh, heard everybody rich. All I gotta do is run, jump, kick. I'm a kid in your area. Uh, I done made it to America. Uh, I'm amazed uh, at America. Welcome to America. I think it'd be tough from that synopsis to to sort of expect... A movie that is so full of energy and fun, actually. Yeah, and this is one, you may remember, it landed on our best of last year list. It's on a lot of best of last year lists. You're probably going to see it on a lot of uh, award nominee lists. But it's out now. It's hitting some theaters. Right, and it's also on Amazon. It's on Amazon Prime now. It's yeah. been in theaters for a couple of weeks, but not not everywhere. Very limited. Yeah, and this is Regina King, the actress who already has an Oscar for acting. Uh, she now probably is going to be in the discussion, I think already is, for an Oscar possibly for directing. She does a great job with this. It started out as a play by Kemp Powers, and uh, who also uh, wrote Soul. So he's, yeah. having, he's having a good, a good uh, few months here. And he adapts his own play by writing the script. And it's a night in history that actually happened. It was late February of 1964, the night after Cassius Clay then, Muhammad Ali now, uh, knocked out Sonny Liston for the heavyweight title. They all, uh, Clay and Malcolm X and Jim Brown and Sam Cooke, they met at the Hampton Hotel in Miami. So this, the play, imagined how that night might go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so now that's been, it's been adapted into a, a movie. And boy, you're so right, because... It mainly, uh, the bulk of it takes place in one hotel room. Yep. Uh, so you can definitely see how that would suit a play very well. Doesn't really, you wouldn't think, suit a movie that well. And that's to the credit of, of Kemp's script and King's direction, and these actors, of course, that you're able to get so much forward w- momentum and so much thrilling content inside one setting. It's really energetic. I mean, there is a lot of energy happening. And it's, well, first of all, like you said, you go back for a second, you really can't discount these these performances. They're just great. And, and it can be really hard, I think, for an actor to, especially to play somebody as frequently imitated as as Cassius Clay and Muhammad Ali, to do it in a way that doesn't feel like a caricature. Yeah, because over the years, everybody has, has imitated Ali. And he was such a bigger-than-life personality. The way he talked, the way he talked about himself, always putting on that show. But uh, Eli Gorey uh, plays him. And you're right, just nails it perfectly. The voice is just enough with, without overdoing it. And, of course, he's playing him as a, as a man in his 20s who just won the heavyweight title. And you get that that fun, playful braggadocio, but you also get a layer of apprehension of knowing what he's stepping into. Yeah. Because he was just about to announce his 
conversion to Islam and his name to Muhammad Ali, and that's why Malcolm X was his mentor and why he was there. And the, the movie gives you a sense that Jim Brown, who's played by Aldous Hodge, so great. Oh, so good. And, it's so good. Yeah, and Sam Cooke, who's played by uh, Leslie Odom Jr., also, also great. Yeah. You get a sense they were there to party. They wanted to, where's the party at? And, and, and that may be true or not, I don't know. But uh, they ended up staying and talking about the struggle that was going on for civil rights and how each one of them fit into it. And that's where it really, really gets thrilling, especially, I thought, between Jim Brown and Sam Cooke, because there starts to be a bit of a struggle between who who's doing more. And then Sam Cooke really takes umbrage at the fact that the way he's approaching it is not an effective way. And boy, they go back and forth with some great wordplay. They challenge each other and they're challenging us right. as an audience. Yeah, it's it's just a spectacular piece of acting. Uh, and, and the ensemble does such a great job sparring with each other in a way that feels like friends. They feel like people who have a history with each other, so they feel comfortable and also mad. Yeah. They are, they're also angry with each other, but in a way that doesn't that that feels very lived in. Yeah, and it reminded me, in some ways, with uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom because we saw that also a play. Right, and that can be you know a play and movies obviously are two different things, mm-hmm. and you have to find a way. You, you somehow both these movies are able to honor those stage roots, yeah. but move move beyond them. You know, in, it's funny you say way. that. We have uh, we just got this really lovely book about the making of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and one of the things that George C. Wolf, no relation, says <laughs> in you know in trying to take it to the screen is um, uh, theater is about ideas. Movie is about action, mm. and that and that he really was very aware of that. And you can tell that Regina King is also very aware of how she has to. Bring out the vibrance in these situations. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic watch and just just enthralling, even though it is mainly set in one room. And it's one night in Miami. Again, it's in select theaters, has been for a while, now branching out, uh, streaming on Amazon. Highly recommend it. Next, we're going to HBO Max. A couple attempts, a high-risk, high-stakes jewelry heist at a department store. Locked down. What are you taking out of Harris? A diamond. It's a new day. Since lockdown, I'm looking back at myself like that was then, and this is now. Yeah. The bastards who told me to fire those people, they are bad. You and I are good, and good is better than bad. You're talking about stealing a diamond. Three million pounds. Live wild or die, Linda. And I'm feeling good. Harrods is the most glamorous store in the world. I know all the security guards. I know the security systems. I just need to get the gentleman's name. His name? Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe! Wow! What can go wrong? Lockdown one last ride. Oh, Lord of what in heaven. Oh, my God, my God! Forgive us the sin of deception. Aging Edgar Allan Poe. Mr. Edgar Allan Poe, please report to security. Who'd have thought a month ago we'd be doing this? Not me. And I'm feeling good. I think, again, I think that... The, the synopsis isn't exactly the, the title, however. The title is really appropriate because most of this movie is about being confined in an apartment with somebody that you really probably would rather be avoiding right now. Yeah, and the two the couple is, is great talent and really likable personalities. Anne Hathaway and Chiwetel Ejiofor. And before you get the idea that this is, this is Oceans 2, as they're off in a heist, it, 
It's really not. Even though there is a heist involved, it is about lockdown because they're a couple that were in London. They're living in London in a pretty sweet townhouse. Yeah. I'll tell you what. And, uh, it, uh, and uh, the stay-at-home orders have just hit, and they were just about to break up. So now they're stuck with each other and kind of keeping their distance in different uh, rooms, different areas of the townhouse. And he's been furloughed, and she, as a high-powered executive, has had to lay people off via Zoom. Yeah. And then they, I'm not, we're not even going to try to tell you how this happens, but they, they, it falls in their lap the chance to steal this priceless diamond without anybody knowing. So yes, there's a heist, but it's more about the lockdown. And it is, uh, it's writer Stephen Knight, who has certainly written some good stuff. He wrote Lock. Yeah. Well, which is funny that you bring that one up, because that's another movie that probably shouldn't work because it's just in this enclosed right. space. It's just in this enclosed, because it's just one guy by himself. But still, I thought that was interesting that he's branched out to just two people in this enclosed <laughs> space. <laughs> but then he's also written things like Serenity. Um, whew, awful. Um, you know, and, so he gave he gave Anne Hathaway another chance, right? Because she was kind <laughs> enough to be in Serenity. But also, he wrote Dirty Pretty Things, which yeah. is the first time we saw Chiwetel Ejiofor in anything. And he's so great in everything. And like you're saying, these two performances, these two talents, they're the reason that this movie works. Yes, directed by Doug Lyman, who's mainly known for action, things like Edge of Tomorrow yeah. and things like that. But the the dialogue, it's it's sort of it's kind of that dialogue that is so it, it's the banter is so perfect it's not real. Yeah. It it doesn't feel like the way people talk. But you're right. This these two main actors bring it home. And it's populated with a bunch of great cameos, mainly on computer screens, because this was a production that was filmed during a pandemic. So you get faces like Ben Kingsley and Ben Stiller and Stephen Merchant and but they're mainly all <laughs> on computer screen. Mindy Kaling, she's mm-hmm. in there too. And so it touches on, of course, a lot of things, a lot of aspects of life in the pandemic with glitches and Zoom calls and things like that. To me, I thought they're a little overdone, but uh, that's really what it's about. And I thought it worked, the movie worked best. I mean, heist movies are always fun. They just are. They are. You like to see heists. But I think <laughs> this is really just forgettable fluff for the most part, mm-hmm. except for the two main actors and except for the the few moments where I thought it it deals with lockdown, not so much in the changes that we've seen, but the way it has revealed things about us that were always there. Yeah, That's where I think in future movies about the pandemic will really succeed if they can dig into that. But it's on HBO Max, and if you're home and you like these stars, and it's just forgettable fun, and that is lockdown. Next is the story of a rancher on the Arizona border becoming the unlikely defender of a young Mexican boy desperately fleeing the cartel assassins who've pursued him into the U.S. Liam Neeson is the marksman. You're not safe here. Let's go. What the hell were you thinking taking that kid? They were going to kill him. They were waiting for him at the border. You're damn well ought to appreciate what I'm doing for you. You want to help me? You take me back. I'll find my own way home. I'm taking you to your family in Chicago. After that, I don't care what you do. The man you saw at the border is from the Vasquez cartel. He'll find you. When he does, he will kill you. Liam Neeson is Clint Eastwood. Yeah, uh, not too many years ago, or maybe a lot of years ago, this would be a Clint Eastwood film all the way. And they know it, because there's a scene in this movie where they're watching an old Clint Eastwood movie on TV. <laughs> so at least they know it, but it's it's just the perfect Eastwood setup. The character is an older veteran. He lost his wife to cancer. He's about ready to lose his ranch to the bank, and he's got a crisis of faith. I mean, just checking all the Clint Eastwood boxes here, <laughs> and then this boy comes across his path, and he 
is going to take him from Arizona and flee the uh, the cartel assassins and take him to family in Chicago with the car full of cartel assassins on his trail. And it becomes that sort of a, a road movie as they're trying, trying to get away. And it leads, of course, to a final shootout. And it's really, it's one where maybe, especially for a movie that seems like it should be a Clint Eastwood movie, to have a lot more action than it does. It really doesn't have that much action. It has some shootouts. It's more about the pursuit and the chase and finally leading to this one this one standoff at the end. It seems like it's got a lot of aspects of a Western about it, which, of mm-hmm. course, a lot of Clint Eastwood movies did, too. But is it me, or does Clint Eastwood, I think, not Clint Eastwood, Liam Neeson, during this pandemic, he's had more movies debut in theaters. Every time I turn around, there's a new movie out, and it stars Liam Neeson. Yeah, he does. He makes a lot of films. But what's interesting <laughs> is that Liam Neeson makes a lot of Liam Neeson movies, which I know a lot of other people do, where it's just, you know, it's, it's a guy with a particular set of skills. Right. And, and it has become such a trademark that, you know, sometimes you'll see Sean Penn. Oh, Sean Penn is making a Liam Neeson movie, right? <laughs> Holly Berry has made two Liam Neeson movies, and you know what I mean? And it's interesting to me that is now that he basically has carved out his own niche in film, He's going to jump over to somebody else's niche. Yeah, and this is another one, uh, sort of how we described lockdown. It's not great, but it's not terrible, and it's not going to be a draw in theaters. It almost seems like one of those that maybe that's been sitting around, and okay, we'll just throw it out there in theaters. Yeah, it could be. This could work a lot better, I think, once it comes to streaming, and people are just clip. Well, what's on? Okay, Liam Neeson, and flip it on. You're not gonna. You're not gonna be so sad. You wasted the hour and a half, but it's not one that you're gonna remember. It's just a, a, a fine type of vehicle for this type of movie. And eh, I hate that. I, I hate that description of meh. I hate when yeah. people describe things as meh. So I don't want to do it. But that's kind of <laughs> what we're saying here. It's uh, it, it's you know what, what I like perfectly liked? fine. Cold pursuit. Oh, Liam Neeson, yeah. Yeah, it's a Liam Neeson that I liked because it was weirdly funny and because it didn't fit a very... You kept expecting it to go to a very specific pattern, which is the Liam Neeson pattern, by right. the way. And it doesn't. It takes these weird... It does in the end, but it takes these very weird off-routes. So if you're doing that and flipping around and you're seeing one of his 315 movies, that's not a bad one. This one You take, always love The Grey. Oh, The Grey is great. This one takes no weird off-shoots off no. at all. None at all. And it's The Marksman. Hey, let's turn it up to 11 as summer camp meets Spinal Tap as we journey to rock and roll fantasy camp where dreamers from across America and around the world gather to shred with their heroes. It's Rock Camp, the movie. Artists love to give back. They realize their success is based on the fans. And that's how I came up with the idea of rock and roll fantasy camp. Okay, this person could play, this person can kind of play. You would have a 15-year-old kid playing drums and a dentist on guitar. If this band were a real band, it would be the weirdest band ever, but cool. Looking forward to another good bashing of rock camp. I've reconnected with my joy of playing. Singing for the first time on stage. It's a very special thing. That moment, for me and for him, it's real. I can't think of a more fun thing to do. I mean, it's better than stamp collecting. Yep, Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp uh, first was put on in 1997, and the movie, the documentary here will tell you, it was, wasn't a, a big hit right out of the box. But then it suddenly got some attention in TV commercials, in pop culture and TV. The Simpsons, the of Simpsons, course, addressed yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And then it started to gather some pop culture steam, and some big rock stars started signing on, and now it's thriving. So obviously, these dreams come at a price. 
And a lot of the campers that we meet here are lawyers and they're big accountants at firms and things. So this is not cheap to get these kind of thrills. But it's and, and it's not a, a great documentary. At times, it seems more like a marketing video. Mm hmm than anything else, and some of the uh, production values are rough. But you know what? It's fun, and it also tells a, a great story of how this camp got started. The guy who who uh, had the idea, a promoter named David Fishoff, he's got an interesting story as well. He's an interesting guy that might even merit his own documentary someday. I don't know. But he really seems genuinely interested in making people happy and giving them, rock fans, this experience. And some of the rock stars that you meet also seem like Really nice people, especially Paul Stanley, uh, Roger Daltrey, Sammy Hagar, a couple others. They seem like they are really getting a kick out of this. And also some others, just mainly instrumentalists, names you might not know, but they're members of uh, very successful bands. They talk to a couple of them, and they honestly seem really touched as they talk about how this has this whole experience has reinvigorated their, invigorated their appreciation for what they do, hmm. how lucky they are, and how much they love it. So... And, and the campers, I wish they would have focused on a few, uh, fewer campers because then you have more time to get to know them better. Sure, absolutely. But the ones we do meet, you, you do. You see lives uplifted. You see real talent from some of the young ones given a chance to grow. And, and it, it's, it's a nice message here, and it's fun, especially, obviously, if you love rock and roll and you're, you're going to uh, know some of these names. I, I will say that some of the footage, judging from the look of these famous faces that we know, how they look today, some of this footage is not recent. <laughs> <laughs> it's not at all. But it's still good footage, and it, it, it's worth uh, spending some time with. Again, it's got some rough edges for sure and doesn't really focus on the fact that, uh, yeah, it costs, it costs some money to do this. They're not giving this out, but it definitely seems like an uplifting experience. And for someone who 15 years ago had a blast going to a baseball fantasy camp. You're welcome. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> uh, I can see this could really be a thrill for these people. So yeah, you get a kick out of this. Uh, Rock Camp, the movie, and it is showing in select theaters now as well. Yeah, and you can watch it in the virtual screening room at Gateway Film Center if you just go to gatewayfilmcenter.org. Rock and roll. Let's keep to the documentary theme. This is based on newly declassified files. It's documentarian Sam Pollard's resonant film exploring the U.S. government's surveillance and harassment of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This is called MLK FBI. When the National Archives puts government documents up on the web, one has to confront them. Tapes from the hotel rooms, FBI reports, those are pieces of information that we shouldn't have. The FBI was most alarmed about King because of his success. They were running a surveillance state. This represents the darkest part of the Bureau's history. Well, this would be a timely movie anyway, because you can easily see they wanted to release this around the holiday. Sure, his Mar birthday. Yeah, sure. But what's going on in the world right now, and especially this country, makes this even more relevant because, uh, as it said there, some newly declassified files give more insight in the harassment that J. Edgar, Edgar Hoover and the FBI at the time, how they were harassing the private life of Dr. King. And they were threatened, obviously, by his power and his charisma, and they thought the best way to destroy that was to get some dirt on him and his sexual indiscretions and embarrass him in front of his public. And so they were violating his civil rights all over the place, wiretapping him and and recording and everything else. And 
this focuses on that campaign of harassment. And it's just, it's a good history lesson, obviously, when you you see some of these declassified files. But then it's it's so relevant to going on right now because you see the same tired, bigoted, attitudes expressed then that we're seeing now and and you just the the folly of our continued confidence in our own righteousness is just exposed in that uh manner it's it's sad it's it's disheartening that this still is going on today and uh and you're you're sorry for what they put him and his family through and it's it's very enlightening in, in that regard, especially when you get some of these new interviews with people that used to work in the bureau, like James Comey, mm-hmm. and he calls this whole thing uh, just the darkest day, the saddest time in, in the bureau, and, and you can see why. And then it also points to, boy, um, just a few years from now, in 2027, it'll be 50 years since they made these tapes. These Which se- means they'll be declassified. They will be declassified in, in six years, and so, uh, boy, who knows? Uh, what that will bring, but it's it's really worth seeing. It's it's painful for sure yeah. and uncomfortable for sure, but just a great history lesson that is even more. It would have been vital even without what's going on now, right? But uh, even more so, so so vital. And this one is also out in uh, certain in select theaters. Yeah, it is streaming, and you can see it in Columbus, Ohio, at Studio Thirty Five. Yeah, MLK FBI. Highly recommend that documentary. And another documentary next, and this one really hit home personally for us. This is behind the gates of a palm tree-lined fantasy land. Four residents of America's largest retirement community, the Villages, Florida, strive to find solace and meaning. This is some kind of heaven. I think that when you live in the Villages, you're acting the part. Surely everybody's life is not perfect. Now that we're in the villages, Reggie's sense of reality has become even more out there. I came down here to meet a nice-looking lady with some money that I'd be not embarrassed to be seen on the street with. Somebody found me out. I got in trouble with the law last night. You're charged with possession of cocaine. If you want to avoid trouble, don't come here. It's a new awakening. This is the last hurrah. I'm about ready to call it quits. We have too much fun down here, you know? Yeah, this one hit home because my mom, your mother-in-law, used to live in the villages. Yes, she did. And you were there once. I was. I visited uh, quickly, and I couldn't wait to get out. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so unreal. Lance Oppenheim is the director, and he does an excellent job of capturing the unreality of this gated community of 100,000 elderly people, the vast majority of them not working, and the, the whole community. I mean, it's, it isn't a real place. You know, they have created a pretend downtown, like a story, yeah. like to go, you know, like a history of, that doesn't exist, that's yeah. pretend and that's drawn in. And, and when I was there just overnight, I just, I did, I got that whole feeling that the whole thing was just like another planet or a section of Disneyland. Yeah. And that's the point. That's the purpose. That's what these people have, you know, they've moved there specifically looking for this, for basically their retirement to be simply sort of an endless theme park. Yeah. You know, well, as and, the one guy says in the trailer, this is our last hurrah. Yeah. 
So the film wisely follows four people, a couple, a widow, and a single man, and just sort of experiences the villages through them. And it's also filmed just beautifully. I mean, the the colors are so vivid, and he, he does this great job of framing. There's a lot of of synchronized whatnot happening. They have synchronized swimming because of course they have synchronized golf cart dancing. And then, so, and, and I mean, it's, it's an incredible film to look at. He has a real eye for creating this bizarre artifice. The people that he follows are very interesting, but I'm not sure that he ties it all together particularly well. You, you especially, you especially love the, the widow. She's just trying so hard not to be, a lonely outsider in a community that was absolutely not built for that. But the most fascinating is this sketchy 85-year-old man yep. who doesn't live there. He's not from that. Well, nobody's from there. And he lives in his van. He lives in his van, and he's just very open about he's there looking for a sugar mama to take him in so that he can live with her. Uh, and he's very specific about what he's looking for. Somebody who's not embarrassed to be seen with in public. Says a guy who lives in a van. What, you remember a, a few years ago, well, actually several years ago now, remember that headline we saw? I think it was in the USA Today or somewhere. Oh, I sure it, do. It, it was Before about, you even said it. It was about a boom in STDs among the elderly population. And I'm thinking, please don't say the villages. Please don't say the villages. The villages. Yep. Because it's wild there. I mean, one of the one of the people even says it's like moving to college. It's like they're moving to college. Mm-hmm. They have no responsibilities. Everything at their fingertips. They all they do a lot of square dancing. There's a you know a lot of drinking. There's a lot of public partying. It's a crazy place. Just to watch it. It's such a, a train wreck is the wrong word. It's just gorgeous and bizarre and weirdly unseemly to me. The entire episode. I I, I have to say as a film. I don't think that he does. I don't think that Oppenheim does enough to sort of decide what direction he's going. When you look at it, you think it's kind of lampooning the wretched excess that boomers apparently mm-hmm. are taking to their graves. But <laughs> but then he creates these lovely character vignettes where he gets to know these four different people. And I don't think those two things mesh as well as they probably ought to. However, you're not going to forget these people. And yeah. this place is just, it is, it's an alien planet. And if you, really, if you had never heard of it before, this would be a fascinating way into the craziness that is the villages. And that is some kind of heaven. That is streaming now Prime Video, just a six ninety nine rental. So You, you know. can also, again, just, just like Rock Camp, this is another bizarre documentary from an alien planet that you can watch at Gateway Film Center's uh, virtual screening room. And that is called Some Kind of Heaven. Hey, let's wrap it up with three horror movies. First is a man with a mysterious past fleeing the country to escape his own personal hell, only to arrive somewhere much, much worse. Bloody hell. So, trying to escape my hell of a past only landed me somewhere much, much, much worse. And now, if I want to have a future... I've got one night to escape. It's a family. These total psychos. This is not a documentary from the tourist board of Finland. I'll tell you what. (laughs) Yeah, this is described as horror, but also a mystery and even some horror comedy. It is very funny. It's wrong-headed, nasty, mean-spirited, and somehow oftentimes quite sweet bloody comedy. Uh, It's about a guy, an American. Yeah, it's about an American named Rex, played spectacularly by Ben O'Toole, who gets himself into some trouble in the States, that trouble goes viral. 
He doesn't think he's done anything wrong, regardless of the body count. And so when he is uh, free on his own reconnaissance again, he really just wants to put it behind him. And he cannot do it in the United States because he's famous mm-hmm. for it. So he decides he's going to go someplace far away where nobody knows him. And then he falls into some very, very sketchy hands. And it is funny and bloody and very, very nasty at times. It's mainly because of O'Toole's performance that it is so enjoyable because he's very funny and weirdly charming. <laughs> and this is another uh, very uh, budget-oriented film you can catch on Prime Video. Just five ninety nine for bloody hell good time. This is a new one from Shudder. The company of wolves is better than that of man. Once upon a frenzied time, woman meets man. Woman dances with the man. Man kisses woman. Man grips woman. Woman escapes the man. Man chases woman. Nothing new. Or is there? That's a weird description for hunted. Only a handful entered the forest. Giant wolves ran wild. <laughs> yes! The young girl's pure song had awoken the forest. <laughs> and it wished to protect her. The forest was a defender of the innocent. It sent harsh and punishing emissaries. The company of wolves is better than that of man. We said for a while now that Shudder, with their originals, has been on a little roll. Yes, this is a good one. And it's director Vincent Perrineau, who was co-director of Persepolis. Nice. Persepolis is such an absolutely, not a horror film at all, but just a glorious uh, uh, feature-length animated Animated, film. And this is live action, but you can tell right off the bat that this guy, he's got such a flair for the visuals, for color, for use of color. The film makes you think it's going to do what you expect it to do because, I mean, like they do it quite intentionally. But but they don't even, characters don't even have names, except the female lead, whose name is Eve. And everybody else is, they don't ever, you never learn their names. You get a sense as it wears on that what the film is saying is this is as old as time this right here and so then when it gets nuttier and nuttier and more absurd i think it's making a very interesting point about that about predator and prey about female victimhood and and turning that on its head the color use is spectacular here the movie gets so just nutty and violent and screaming toward the end, very primal. It just feels like it is in constant motion, first slowly, then a little faster, and then it's like it's moving too fast for you. It is just running and screaming. It's a quick film. It's interesting, visceral, gorgeous to look at, violent, pretty satisfying, really. And that is Hunted, now on Shudder. Got another horror movie next. When a misstep after a workplace shooting puts alcoholic Marcy on leave, she heads out to see her sister in California. Halfway there, she stops for a couple of days at the Bright Hill Road. It's like there's a different person inside me. She's relentless. She just wants to drink. Bright Hill Road has been a way station for all kinds of people. And some of these people are doing penance for their sins. No names. I think all your troubles stem from your inability to see things as they really are. As they really are? Bright Hill Road does not cry or judge. 
this place, okay? This whole, whole place is something... Something's not right. Bright Hill Road is the name of a kind of a small town inn or hotel. It gives you the sense of like a low rent overlook. You know, mm-hmm. as soon as you're in there, something ain't right. Something ain't right in this building. <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, and that's really what it is. Marcy is fleeing from some tra- some trauma in her past. She's headed toward California to stay with her sister for a little while, see if she can just get past it. She is a raging alcoholic. And she just, you know, she wakes up in her car in front of this hotel and decides she's just going to check in for a while. And it's very clear right off the bat that that's not really what's happening. I don't think I don't think the film is trying to hide that from you. And so she's, you know, going about the sort of supernatural time period inside the hotel as she's learning lessons and and trying to come to grips with, you know, the trauma, with guilt, with grief, um, with culpability. It's uh, it's mainly good because of the lead performance. Siobhan Williams is just a force of nature in this movie. She does such an incredible job. It's a very small cast. The opening is very percussively violent. And then there's it gets toward the end of the film when there's another scene that really takes a turn that you weren't entirely expecting and, and is uncomfortably violent. But the rest of it is just this meandering sort of supernatural tale. It's a very interesting movie. It's hardly flawless. But as you said, it's a pretty inexpensive rental and a nice job from a from a very low budget film. Yeah, that's uh, director is Robert Cuffley and uh, writer Susie Maloney. So a nice uh, female horror movie mm-hmm, writer, mm-hmm. horror movie writer there getting involved. Yeah, bargain priced on Prime Video at just three ninety nine for Bright Hill road and one more caught between a lost love story and inescapable paranoia this is a genre bending slow burn thriller that follows adam a wallflower who happens to be the last person left alive or so he thinks this is go slash don't go would you believe me if i told you i didn't know how i got here i know you you got some tricks up your sleeve The idea of you is the only thing keeping me alive. The idea of me is slowly killing you. Brandon Thomas reviewed this one for us, this post-apocalyptic thriller, and he was so impressed by it that just the freshness of it and the way that it treats its characters and treats its subject matter, he just thought it was great. Yeah, because, let's face it, post-apocalyptic, last person on Earth, that's that can get stale, and that can be another uh, type of genre that really recycles ideas. Mm-hmm. A lot. Uh, but yeah, anytime you find a fresh angle, we're all down for that. And if you want to read Brandon's full review, he definitely liked this one. It is up at madwolf.com. And that's Go Don't Go. Another bargain price. Watch on Prime Video at three ninety nine. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. And that music means it's time to head to the lobby to check in with Daniel Baldwin, a.k.a. the Schlocketeer. Got his ear to the ground. What are you hearing this week? Well, we'll start with the bad news first. Sony has pushed the release date of their Jared Leto vampire superhero movie, Morbius, back from March to October. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) And while it's not official yet, it's looking like MGM and Universal are going to go ahead and move No Time to Die from April back an undetermined late 2021 release. Yeah, that's no surprise. There. I know you're bummed. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I I don't want to have to choose between James Bond and surviving. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm honestly not that bummed. That's big of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
but uh, on a lighter note, Nomadland, which I know has made a lot of best of 2020 lists. Loved it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, is dropping in theaters on February 19th and on Hulu the exact same day. Nice. So good, good. Everyone should be able to watch it. Good. Goro Miyazaki's Earwig and the Witch is hitting HBO Max on February 11th. A24 is finally releasing St. Maud this year. It's hitting theaters at the end of this month and then should be hitting VOD a couple weeks later on February 12th. Wow. Yeah, there there are not very many movies like hanging out yet from last year that I'm more excited to see than St. Maud. Yeah, I'm, I'm really pumped to see that one as well. And then there's the Black Panther Party period piece drama, Judas and the Black Messiah. That is hitting HBO Max on February 12th. And then pivoting a little bit, Netflix dropped a trailer the other day, which flashed through a ton of their stuff that's coming out this year, but they are dropping a whopping 71 original films in 2021, which is basically more than one a week for the rest of the year. Mm. So that's pretty crazy. Yeah, I did see their announcement. I, I started to watch it. I just couldn't keep up with them all. <laughs> uh, it, it flashed through them way too fast. And some of it's stuff that's still shooting. So, <laughs> <laughs> And then the last one on the list is Paramount is about ready to offload yet another movie. Uh, this time it's the Chris Pratt sci-fi action or The Tomorrow War. It looks like Amazon is going to buy that one for a $200 million price tag. She's the one wow. doing that a lot lately. But what's funny about that to me is Paramount keeps offloading their big movies. They're selling The Tomorrow War. They already sold Without Remorse and the Coming to America sequel. But this year they're supposed to rebrand CBS All Access as Paramount+. Plus. And there's already a ton of TV shows on there. They're supposed to start tossing all their movies on there as well. So I, every time I see one of these announcements, I keep wondering why in the world they're selling all their big movies off when they could have held on to them and used them to help promote you know, the change in the platform to compete yeah. with Disney Plus and HBO Max and Peacock and everything else. It just that, seems weird to me. Yeah, that almost sounds like one of those ideas that makes so much sense they're not going to do it. I well, mean, it, except it, that do you have to pay for that? Yeah. You have to pay for the CBS Plus or yeah, whatever? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a subscription service. Just right. like a lot of these well, other then, ones. Yes, but yeah, they does. would need, because when, yeah, he's absolutely right. When they do finally unveil it, they're going to want some good content to try to push it. So why wouldn't they? I don't understand that either. I don't either. I have no idea. <laughs> Got to put us in charge. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I wish I had that money. <laughs> uh, Daniel Baldwin, you can find him at the Schlocketeer, and we appreciate it. I uh, appreciate being here. All right, looking ahead to next week, we've got seven that we know about. <laughs> that we know about now, uh, starting with White Tiger. That's supposed to be so great. And then one I know you're looking forward to, Stallone. Frank, that is. I remember playing his song, Far From Over, on my first radio job in the early <laughs> 80s. Frank Stallone. Yeah, he needs a documentary. Also, Brothers by Blood. Clapboard Jungle. 1982. Young Lean. And Breaking Fast. That's what we have so far. We'll see what gets added to the list. In the meantime, let us know what you thought about anything uh, for this week. Always easy to find us on Twitter. It's Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Also on Facebook and Instagram, it's Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website, all of our written reviews and uh, our other fun stuff, including our horror movie-only podcast called Fright Club. You can find that all at madwolf.com. So until next week, we hope to hear from you. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap.